But uh, if you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along with me. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought a woman they had caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, stone her. But let those who have never sinned throw the first stones. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to her, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus says, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Well, for the past three weeks, Pastor Ken has been leading us to explore the subject of relationships. The series is a whole we've called Standing Together. It's really about helping us to discover and understand the importance of relationships within the context of our journey as Christ followers. Simply put, we need others in our lives so that together we can grow deeper. It's our desire as we not only study this series, but just as a whole, as a church, that TCC would be a safe place. And uh, a place that we can come from different backgrounds, whether it's ethnic backgrounds, whether it's been that we've been in the church a long time, whether this is our first Sunday in church. I don't know. It might be. But it's a safe place that you can come and you can learn and you can grow and you can discover and ultimately meet Jesus and go deeper in a relationship with him. To be a safe place. And uh, that's one of the things I love about TCC. I think that as much as that's our desire and our goal, I see it happening. And um, there's a sense that as we have this safe place, that it's okay to be broken. It's okay to have struggles. It's okay to, on a Sunday when we make an invitation to come forward for prayer, that you come and you're not worried about, well, who's looking at me and who's wondering about why they're coming and why I'm praying or anything like that. It's just... In a word, freedom. And I know that I feel that very personally myself. That it's a very unique thing and something that we want to continue to protect and continue to encourage and, and just have a sense that people have that sense of freedom. That it's a safe place to be who you are. And so as we've looked at this series of Standing Together, we've explored the significance of loyalty and listening 
of encouragement, and most recently last week, the, the joy of building relationships. But really, the idea that, that we receive joy in our relationship with Jesus and that it flows through us and then into our relationships uh, with, with one another. And whenever we talk about relationships, I think there are barriers that we can face at times when we think about relationships. For one, relationships take time. They don't just happen. It takes time to develop them. And all of us can say, oh, we're busy and this happens. And so we go through life so busy, uh, so, so frantic at times that we don't really have the time to develop true and deep friendship. And so that becomes a barrier that we have to intentionally get around. Another barrier that we might have is that, that we have a tendency to put on veils and masks to keep us from being authentic. And so we, 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 we get close, but not too close, because if we get too close, then we might reveal some of the things behind the masks, and so we're a little less likely to, to go too deep. And really, that is the third, third barrier that I think that we have at times is fear. Because we think that if we go deeper in a relationship with another person, if they really knew who I am, if they knew what I thought about, if they knew the things that I say or do at times, or the things that I struggle with, that maybe we would be rejected. And so today, I want to talk about acceptance. Romans 15, verse 7, there's this one key verse. And the Bible is full of one another commands. And so that's why we talk about standing together, that we're in relationship with one another, because when you have a one another command, you can't just live that command out if you don't have another person to, to mutually share that command with. And so there's many of these commands. We've already looked at encourage one another and serve one another and pray for one another and, and uh, offer hospitality to one another. And the list can go on and on and on. But here in Romans 15 verse 7, there is this verse. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And so what does this mean? You see, if we're going to be a church that really stands together, a, a church that's a safe place, a, people, a, a group of people who experience deep and real community, it begins with accepting one another. And while this is just one verse, it's found in the context of Romans 14 and 15. And you know how they always say that one of the three keys to real estate is location, location, location? Well, in Scripture... It's kind of the same thing. It's context, context, context. It's where is it located? What's happening? What's happening in and around this verse? And in, in Romans chapter 14 and 15, Paul is just explaining how those with a strong faith should treat those with a weak faith. And then in verse 5 of Romans 15, he breaks into a prayer, a benediction, this prayer of blessing on the Roman church. And he says this, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's his prayer. Then it's almost as if he anticipates the question, okay, so well, then what do we do? What do we do in order to facilitate the spirit of unity, this standing together? And he comes out and he just says, okay, here's the answer. Accept one another. And so this little phrase, this, this idea of accepting one another is very, very important. 
You could almost say that if followers of Jesus don't accept one another, then unity will ultimately elude them. There won't be or there can't be one heart and mouth that glorifies God. And so how do we accept one another? Well, a clue is found in the second phrase of that verse, just as Christ accepted you. That's the basis for our acceptance of others, how Christ has accepted us. And how did Christ accept us? Well, in a sense, just as we are, unconditionally. But there's a little more to that. And so let's dig a little deeper and check out what Jesus taught about acceptance. And so referring back to the passage that I already read, John 8, verse 1 through 11, there's this first century scene that's unfolding. And in this scene, Jesus encounters a broken and humiliated woman who has been caught in the most shameful of circumstances. And in this passage, I believe we see this ultimate act of acceptance. And as we look at this passage, you could look at it from different perspectives. Maybe looking at it from some of the main characters' eyes, there's Jesus, who's the one showing acceptance. There's the teachers of the law and the Pharisee filled with condemnation. Maybe we identify a little bit with the woman ourselves, burdened with guilt and shame. Or maybe you're just one of the crowd, maybe an innocent bystander, listening in, watching from the sidelines as this scene unfolds. And so Jesus has been teaching, and his teaching is interrupted because this woman has been just caught cheating, and this group of grace-killing, legalistic, religious leaders are out to get both the woman and Jesus. And so they're gathered out in the temple courts, and all the people gathered around, you know, maybe like this, but they weren't sitting in chairs, maybe sitting on the ground, and just gathered around, and Jesus was teaching. And interrupting that teaching come the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, dragging this woman. Make way, coming through. Here we are. And it makes very clear reference to the fact that she was caught in adultery. It wasn't a rumor. It wasn't an innuendo. It was being caught in the very act. And adultery in that generation, in that, in that culture, was a capital offense under the law. And all you needed was two witnesses. And the odds are that we're probably not dealing with a coincidence here. It could well be that what we have in this scene is really a, a, a type of entrapment a setup. But in this case, we don't have a deliberately contrived event to trap the woman as such. But we don't want to get too distracted with the woman because she's really only the bait. The real catch here is Jesus. And that certainly was their motive according to verse 6. He says, they were trying to trap him, that is Jesus, into saying something that they could use against him. That was ultimately their motive. And so with sneers on their proud faces, the religious leaders, they entice Jesus. He says, Jesus, 
The law of Moses commands that we stone such women. Actually, men as well, but that is conveniently ignored. So what about the man? Why isn't he standing before the crowd? Was it simply that he managed to slip out quickly and get away? Or is there something a little more sinister going on? You have to admit that it's rather convenient that this just sort of happens to come up when Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's drawing big crowds at the temple and the Pharisees were specifically looking for an excuse to get rid of him. So Jesus, what do you say that we should do? They've set the trap. If Jesus keeps in line with his practice so far and he shows this woman mercy, then he's going to be accused as a, a, as a lawbreaker himself. Had he simply demanded that this woman be forgiven and set free, then they would have pounced on him for condoning sin and ignoring the law of Moses. If, however, he upholds the law and signals that the woman should be stoned to get to death, then that could bring him into conflict with the Roman authorities because they were the only ones who had the right to carry out the death penalty. And not to mention that they would probably have accused him of hypocrisy since he had been teaching on the importance of compassion and forgiveness. And so they would have just turned it around and said, look at you don't even practice what you preach. Either way, Jesus looks like he's finished. The trap's been set. But Jesus is much too wise for this. And so he transforms this awful episode into a story of grace. In verse 6 we read, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any, of, any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, we might have expected Jesus to stand up and condemn the religious leaders as hypocrites, but he doesn't. Instead, he does something brilliant. He does something much more subtle and way more effective. He simply stoops down and starts writing with his finger on the ground. Now, if you've read this historical account of this scene and this event in Jesus' life, you've probably wondered, as many others, what did he write? Right? There's all sorts of speculation about it. I even read one guy who's saying, goes, you know what, maybe he was just doodling. You know, uh, uh, was it just it's kind of a delaying tactic? You know, like when you're on the phone and you're trying to think and somehow maybe this kind of sort of nervous energy takes over and you start doodling or you're coloring in the, I always, you know, if there's a, a word and there's a P and you kind of circle in the P and, the, you know, you do, you know nobody does that? Was he just trying to buy some time to find a way out? I don't think so. It's very specific that Jesus wrote on the ground with his finger. But what did he write? 
Could it be that Jesus stooped and began to write out the sins of the women's accusers in letters large enough for them and others to read? As a visual reminder of their sin? Maybe. Because where else in the Bible do we find God writing with his finger? In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10, we read Moses saying this, The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire. You see, the Ten Commandments themselves were written by the finger of God in stone. And so it's not Moses who in the law commanded certain things to be done. It was God. And so here we have Jesus engaging in an act of profound symbolism. By writing on the ground with his fingers, he is making a very bold statement. And the statement is this, that he is the one who gave the law at Sinai. And as the law's author, he is the rightful interpreter. And as the judge, he will make a proper judgment on these matters, and no one is going to tell him what to do. Certainly not these legalistic Pharisees. Now, obviously, there remains some uncertainty as to what exactly Jesus wrote in the sand. And it's likely that we'll never know until we get to Jesus, and if that's a burning question, or until we get to heaven and we meet Jesus, and if that's a burning question, I think it is one. I think I'm going to ask him that. I mean, really, what was it? These things that we don't know. But what we do know is what he said. There's no doubt about what he said. Because as the scribes and the Pharisees frowned and stared, John tells us that Jesus rose to his feet and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Talk about a shot to the heart, a kick in the stomach. If you are sinless, he says to them, then you are qualified to bring shame and accusation and even death on this woman. If you are sinless. Must have been an awkward silence after he said that. And he knelt down again and continued to write maybe a few more sins. And in that silence, perhaps all that was heard was the dull thud of stones hitting the ground. One commentator writes, Suddenly what they have attempted to make a legal issue is seen as a deeply personal moral matter. A group of proud, righteous men now find themselves on the same ground as the woman they are about to stone. Their pious armor has been pierced as each one faces the depths of his own sinful nature. Each has to deal with the inner darkness which so closely intertwined with the self-righteous legalism. The savage delight in catching this woman in the act of sinning. The pompous pride in being able to use her as a shameful test case. Or the vengeful anger that drives them to get at Jesus. And then he adds these penetrating words. Are not these the ugly passions we all seek to hide? 
Jesus stood up again and looked compassionately into the eyes of the woman, full of shame, openly exposed and condemned by her accusers. But at this point now, all of the accusers have left. Only the crowd, witnessing this act of acceptance, the spotless Savior, and a sinner, the shameful adulteress, and the holy Lamb of God. So what can we learn from this act of acceptance? How do we then understand acceptance? What does it mean for us to accept one another? And it's hard to define. It's one of those things that we may have difficulty describing, but we know it when we experience it. Another way of looking at this is is to, to translate it, receive one another. We receive one another. We welcome them. We acknowledge one another as followers of Jesus, and we treat each other as such. John Ortberg is one of my favorite writers because he has a way of putting words that just totally make sense and are so insightful. And he says this about acceptance. He says, To accept people is to be for them. It is to recognize that it is a very good thing that these people are alive and to long for the best for them. It does not, of course, mean to approve of everything they do. It means to continue to want what is best for their souls no matter what they do. And isn't that how Jesus treated the woman? She chose to behave inappropriately. There's no condoning of the adultery here. Somehow she got involved with a man other than her husband. Maybe he noticed her. Maybe she felt like he really cared. At first it might have been very innocent, but then she crossed the line, probably several lines, until it was a full-blown affair. She probably lied to cover it up at one point. She started to believe that it was okay. And then she's caught in the actual act. And her eyes are opened. And she made the choices that led to this moment. But does Jesus approve of her actions? No, he does not. But he wants what is best for her soul. And in that situation, what is best for her was forgiveness and grace that would cover her guilt and her shame. And so Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Well, then neither do I condemn you. And what does he say? Go now and leave your life of sin. The only person on earth actually qualified to condemn her doesn't. Instead, he freed her. He doesn't minimize her sin, nor does he cover it up. She is to get rid of it. Cut it out like you would a cancerous tumor. Otherwise, it will destroy her because Jesus will judge sin. But Jesus also shows mercy. And the door of grace now has been swung wide open and she has been given an opportunity for a new beginning. Jesus breathed grace into her life. He didn't condemn her. 
And there in the midst of her sin, she encountered Jesus, the Savior of the world. She had assumed that her deeds done in the dark would never be known in the light. Hers was a shameful secret sin. Then one day, she comes face to face with Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, whose penetrating gaze looked intently on her disgrace, and yet he accepted her. So how then do we practice acceptance? Well, the first thing that I thought of was just that we watch our tongues. Our tongues can get us in a lot of trouble. Have you figured that out yet? The things that we say? James says that we should keep a tight rein on our tongues. You see, words are so powerful. Every word we speak has the power to either give a little life or to chip away at the spirit of another person. With our words, we have the ability to offer acceptance and love and hope. But we also have the ability to judge and condemn and wound with our words. It's our words and our actions. How do we show that we care? And that's as simple, I think, sometimes as just being genuinely happy to see another person that we maintain eye contact when we're in conversation with them. And we listen, and that was really a, a key focus of Pastor Ken's message a few weeks back. But acceptance is very fragile, because it can be shattered by something as subtle as an eye roll, a heavy sigh, or even a knowing smile. So we watch our tongues. Secondly, we put down our stones, Let me explain. I think we all might carry some stones around, but none of us are really in a position to do so. Christian thinkers often divide sin into two categories. There's the sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit. Sins of the flesh, they they generally involve appetites that get out of control. Things like lust or greed or gluttony or drunkenness or laziness or whatever it is. Given enough time, just about anything can become the idol of our lives. And these sins then lead to other sins as well. Lies, deceit, betrayal. But sins of the Spirit have have more to do with our souls. Things like pride and arrogance. Self-righteousness and judgmentalism. Sins of the flesh are more external, things that we can see easily. Sins of the spirit are internal. Sins of the flesh that we see usually cause gossip, which gossip in itself is motivated by something much deeper. Typically, church discipline has to do with sins of the the flesh. Churches are usually not scandalized by sins like arrogance or self-righteousness. I mean, if you hear in the news a pastor had to leave a church for moral reasons, you can be pretty sure that it wasn't pride. And several times, Jesus, as he taught, he, he contrasted these two categories of sin. There was the Pharisee and the, the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. There is the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee who said, I'm 
grateful that I'm not like this man over here. And this man just humbly beat his chest and said, Father, forgive me. I'm a sinner. He acknowledged it in his brokenness. Even the prodigal son and the older brother. Remember that event in Jesus' life as he taught? The teaching of Jesus? Right? We know that the younger son was the one who went and squandered his money on prostitutes and wild living. There's a sin of the flesh. But what about the older brother? Who, when the younger brother returned, couldn't even accept the younger brother back. Couldn't call him by name. Didn't acknowledge any familial relationship and just said, when this son of yours comes back. Well, what was his sin? Pride. Arrogance. An unwillingness to accept and to love his brother in spite of his actions. Each time the people guilty of the sins of the flesh, they knew that they were in trouble. But isn't it interesting that they also knew that the person that they needed to run to was Jesus? Again, I quote John Ortberg. He says, In all these stories, the people guilty of pride and arrogance were also blind. They thought it was possible to love God and despise people. They actually thought that they were paragons of spiritual maturity because they avoided sins of the flesh. They had no idea that their sin crippled their ability to love, which makes sins of the Spirit the most dangerous and destructive sins of all. I know how easy it is to walk through life with stones in my hands. Judgmental thoughts, superior attitudes, impatient words, bitter resentments, very little love, caught up in my own self-righteousness. But when it comes to accepting others, means simply that we love them enough to accept them and care enough for them to want what's best for their souls. Interesting, isn't it? How in Jesus' time it was the down and out who always ran towards Jesus. So join me in putting down our stones. Because if you're honest with yourself and you think about it, we've all messed up. We all mess up. We're all broken. Philip Yancey says that Jesus' audience would have been divided into two categories. Sinners, like the woman, and the righteous, like the Pharisees. Yet Jesus, in one brilliant stroke here, replaces them with two different categories. Sinners who admit and sinners who deny. Admitting our sin means that we confess it and we repent from it. And we hear the words of Jesus that says, I do not condemn you, but go now and leave your life of sin. And so lastly, we accept as Jesus accepted us. And you probably saw this one coming. Romans 8, verse 1, there's a wonderful verse there that simply says this, Therefore, 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you haven't noticed the difference and the, the, that I've tried to make here, the distinction I've tried to make, that accepting is not the same as tolerating. Verse 11 is very clear. Jesus doesn't condemn, but he does say, go and sin no more. In accepting someone, we don't refuse to confront or challenge attitudes and behaviors that could harm them, that could damage their souls or even hurt others. And so when we know what something somebody's up to, we can just say to them, you know what, that's a dumb thing to do. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt your spouse. You're going to hurt the people that you love. Cut it out. It's dumb. Because another one of the one another's is admonish one another. And so we have a right to speak into each other's lives that way. But when we do, and this is the key, we don't attack their worth as human beings or mark them as rejects because Jesus accepted us unconditionally. And so we do the same. We don't reject, we accept. And we accept simply because Jesus accepted us. He went to incredible lengths to accept us. It ended up that it was he the one then who was condemned. He was the one who was forsaken so that we could be the ones forgiven. And so when we gather around this table this morning, I always encourage you to examine yourself. Take some time to reflect. And what I'd like you to specifically just keep in focus this mind, keep in your mind's focus this morning, is that we reflect on our acceptance. That Jesus died on the cross to accept us. And then to look at the flip side of that. Lord, is there anyone that I need to accept? Is there somebody at work in all their peculiarities who just drive you insane? Drive you crazy? Maybe this morning it's just, you know what? Breathe grace into their lives. You see, grace is like oxygen. We all need it. And we can accept God's grace. We, we can inhale God's grace, as it were. But then we exhale that grace and extend it to others, extending love and forgiveness to them, just as Christ offered love and forgiveness to us. Let's pray together. Father, this is one of those scenes in the life of Jesus that really is incredibly powerful. We see how brilliantly he maneuvered through that, but it wasn't just finding a way to avoid the trap that the Pharisees set for them. It was an opportunity, I believe, for him to show the heart of God, his Father. That is just and holy, but is full of grace and mercy. And so oftentimes we have to wrestle with that tension that exists 
between these. Lord, my prayer that as we gather around this table now, that we really would think about how you accepted us. We didn't have to be perfect when we said yes to Jesus and crossed the line of faith and put our hope and our trust in you and put our confidence in you. When we made you Lord of our lives, you didn't wait for us to get our act together, be a good enough person. You just offered that free gift of grace and all we needed to do was receive it. And you accepted us. Or take us back to that place. And take us back to yesterday or this past week where we messed up. We did things we shouldn't have done. We said things we shouldn't have said. We carried attitudes. So Father, do a cleansing work in our lives by revealing that to us and then reminding us of the words that you said to the woman. I don't condemn you. But go now and leave your life of sin. He accepted her. He breathed grace. And so, Lord, may this just be a powerful reminder of what you have done for us. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.